Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our two-part exploration of the depths of the sea, the history of knowledge and exploration of the deep sea. And this this time we're really going to be focusing in on William Beebe. That's right. We, we alluded to him at the beginning of the last episode. So he was a, an American naturalist, explorer, author. Uh, he lived from 1877 to 1962. And uh, he was he was a very interesting fellow, just to, to put it mildly. Uh, before there was Neil deGrasse Tyson or Carl Sagan or even Jacques Cousteau, there was William Beebe, yeah. uh, who some writers have called the first celebrity scientist. So he he traveled around and lectured. He wrote books. He, rec- he received quite a bit of uh, media coverage. And he was actually, in writing books, he was a good writer. Yes. Which is a thing that helps. Yeah, he was a good popularizer of science. He was a great science communicator before this was really that much of a thing. Yeah. I often think of Darwin as a great science communicator. But yeah, Beebe really took it to the next level, especially as we'll talk about in a minute by uh, employing all kinds of people to help spread the message of of scientific discoveries in ways that are easily digestible to the public. Yeah, so he uh, he, he was an ornithologist at the New York Zoological Society, and uh, he he actually left uh, college before completing his degree in order to 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 work uh, mm-hmm. for for the society. Uh, but he just he's one of these guys who just seemed to really just ascend uh, once he you know once he hit the ground working. He yeah. was uh, uh, he he was the, ended up being becoming the founder of the society's Department of Tropical Research, mm-hmm. and he conducted. He conducted research, it's worth noting, across two world wars and the Great Depression. Like that was the time period, the trying time period, a time when uh, most of the energy in the world seemed to be aimed at either conducting warfare, surviving warfare, surviving economic depression. Uh, but he was able to successfully carry out a great deal of research and, uh, and then communicate uh, the Department of Tropical Research's work as well. And to do this, he enlisted not only scientists, but also historians, writers, and artists. And by this, I mean he took artists with him on his expeditions, yeah. generating some really captivating artwork. Uh, and Beebe himself sketched the creatures that he saw in the depths. I mean, it's really kind of surprising, however, though, that, that given that he was such a celebrity uh, at the time, uh, that, that we don't see him celebrated as much in pop culture today. Like he certainly, again, he's remembered. <laughs> he, it's not like he's forgotten and lost right. to history, but you would just think that he would have more of a like a Tesla status today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I will say that, again, before we went to this uh, recent exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History in New York about the unseen depths of the ocean, had some stuff about BB. Before that, I... I think maybe I was a, a little bit aware of him but didn't really know anything. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy because his life and his work was so interesting. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if for starters, he influenced a number of notable people. Um, for instance, E.O. Wilson, who we've discussed on the show before, uh, oh. has has pointed to William Beebe as, uh, as someone who inspired his scientific career. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting things about Beebe's legacy. One cool one that does get mentioned sometimes is the fact that he was criticized during his life 
for hiring and mentoring female researchers, which a lot of irritable, sexist establishment scientists of the time thought was an indication that his work was not serious or was unprofessional. Uh, but of course, they were wrong, right? Beebe helped give a leg up to great scientists like uh, Jocelyn Crane, who studied, among other things, invertebrate ethology, so the behavior of invertebrates with a special focus on fiddler crabs, and also the explorer and research scientist Gloria Hollister, who pioneered lab techniques for preparing marine specimens, and she herself actually performed dives in the capsule that we're, we're going to be talking about more in this episode, the bathysphere, the steel ball that finally took us down into the depths. Mm -hmm. Some of the females he employed were also uh, um, artists as well. Uh, there's actually a wonderful New York Times article that came out uh, uh, just last year uh, about an, an exhibition of various works from this period. Uh, that I, I recommend everyone check out. If you just look for William Beebe, Department of Tropical Research Illustrations, you'll find it. And there are some, just some fabulous illustrations of, say, the, the bathysphere descending into the depths with uh, strange creatures swirling around it. Yeah, if you get a chance, you should look up illustrations, especially I would say of the artist Elsa Bostelman, who uh, she was one of the artists who accompanied his research, and she sketched and painted what BB and uh, and his companion Otis Barton saw in the deep from the bathysphere, the, which we're going to be talking about more later. But her work is just beautiful and weird and superb. It's uh, it, it's excellent science art. Yeah, for reasons that'll become obvious uh, as we proceed, uh, photography or certainly uh, film was. Just just not an option uh, aboard the bathysphere. So they had to depend on sketches. Uh, and, and also just you have to consider the time during which all this was taking place. For instance, uh, one of his dives was actually broadcast on NBC radio, uh, which is a testament to the popularity of his work, uh, but also just shows you the limitations of the of visual technology at the time. Now, of course, another great weird note in pop culture is that B.B.'s collaborator, Otis Barton, who was his his co-pilot in the bathysphere and one of the people, I think the designer, the main designer of the bathysphere, made a movie, made yes. a movie based on what they did. Yeah, 1938's Titans of the Deep. <laughs> and if you look at the poster art for this uh, film, and I'll try to include it on the landing page for this episode, it's stuff to blow your mind. You, it creates certain expectations of the content. Yeah, I will say it. So it's supposed to be like a documentary film. Right. right? That's they they what made it. it as a documentary, apparently. And even though it's like BB is mentioned uh on the uh, on the poster, it, apparently BB wasn't himself super involved in the production. Yeah, I've seen it actually described as more of like an action movie or an exploitation horror movie. <laughs> uh, I couldn't I couldn't find this movie, so I don't I didn't get to watch it. Yeah, I would have I was not able to find uh, even any footage from it or a trailer or, or what would pass for a trailer. But you can definitely get a sense of the vibe they were going for if you just look at the poster, which is, of course has like a, a vague whale-shaped sea monster with this big sawtooth face and then a dude with a harpoon poised to hit it. <laughs> it looks uh, in composition like the much later poster for the movie Journey to the Seventh Planet, which is this 1962 sci-fi barbecue about a bunch of astronauts <laughs> who fly out to explore Uranus and then get this they essentially end up with a de-intellectualized version of the plot from Solaris and the movie stars, of course, John Agar. Ah, uh, yes. A, 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 frequent, uh, a frequent name for anyone who's ever plunged the depths of, uh, of B-movies from that era. But if you look at this poster for Journey to the Seventh Planet, it's I, I don't know if it was actually inspired by Titans of the Deep, but they look very similar to me. 
Uh, I also found uh, an image. Uh, this was a, an advertisement, but uh, it turns out even Otis uh, Barton, who, who accompanied uh, uh, William Beebe in the bathosphere, he was famous enough at the time to appear in a camel advertisement for camel cigarettes, uh, where you, you see him uh, uh, featured there, and he's saying, I smoke as many camels as I like. They don't give me jittery nerves. Nope. <laughs> camels have a, have a swell taste, mild, and yet with rich, mellow flavor. Um, I smoke them all in the bathosphere. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't. I do not think the bathosphere is a, a good smoking environment. Two packs per dive. <laughs> well, we've been teasing it enough. I think maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we should discuss the bathosphere itself. All right. All right, we're back. All right, so I, I will refer you to an image, like a photograph of the bathosphere on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, but we're also going to describe it for you here, so no need to pull the car over uh, or what have you, depending on how you're listening to us. Okay. So it, as you're trying to imagine the bathosphere, it's probably best to dismiss some of your more modern and TV-friendly notions of exploratory submarines because the bathosphere was less of a submarine and more of just a, a death trap. Right. It's like, would you like to get inside a bowling ball and go to the bottom of the ocean? Yeah, a steel ball that men climb inside and then it is lowered into the ocean depth. Now, let, let's let's ask some questions. Does this have a propeller? No. Does it have fins? No. Does, does it have robotic arms? No. Does it have really anything on the outside other than just a steel sphere? I mean, basically, it is a steel bowling ball that men climb inside through what uh, what BB referred to just as the door. And then well, it has... <laughs> even door is a little misleading, yes. right? Yeah. I mean, it's not really a door. They got in through a hole that was then bolted shut. Right. See, yeah, it sealed shut like, a, like an iron casket. And then it has these three, uh, these three portals that they look out of that look kind of like stubby uh, eye stalks. So, Robert, how big was the bathosphere that these two people got into? Well, here's a here's a quick quote from Beebe from his uh, biography, uh, Half Mile Down, okay. which uh, which we're going to refer to a lot. If 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 we read a quote quote from Beebe in this and we don't fully uh, attribute it, it's from Half Mile Down. Uh-huh. Beebe says, "It was not as tall as a man, measuring only four feet nine inches in diameter, but its walls were everywhere an inch and a quarter thick, and it weighed five thousand four hundred pounds." <laughs> A first casting had weighed twice as much, but it would have been too heavy for any of the winches available in Bermuda and was junked. Now, about this steel ball, if you don't have an intuitive sense of numbers to physical scale, I want to pause for a second and dwell on how tiny this is. <laughs> you can buy beach balls bigger than this undersea exploration vessel. That's crazy. You included a picture here on our notes uh, yeah. showing what a 60-inch beach ball looks like uh-huh. next to uh, presumably an average-sized individual. I guess this is probably a tall guy, but... But still, imagine two of him inside of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and that's bigger than the bathosphere was. This was, I mean, this this thing was tiny. People like they were crammed inside. Yeah, but there was a reason it had to be that small, right? Yeah, because as uh, William J. Broad points out in his book, The Universe Below, the smaller the sphere, the greater strength of its walls. If you had more space in there, you'd need thicker walls. Which would, of course, mean increasing the weight of the thing. Right. And make it, so, yeah. We you, run into the problem with, with 
with the winches that uh, we've already uh, uh, discussed. It's almost like a parallel of the problems of shielding from radiation in space, right? Mm -hmm. Like you want to send up a spacecraft that'll protect the astronauts with really thick shielding in the walls, but you've got a problem with getting so much mass up into space that, you know, you could have all these really, really thick walls. It's like a parallel to that. You know, you, you could have really, really thick walls to make sure you're super protected from the pressure and you've got enough room to move around, but it just gets harder and harder to get you down into the depths and back up safely if you do that. Yeah. So this was designed by BB and American engineer Otis Barton, who I already mentioned, uh, and it featured three viewing portals. And these were, this was not glass. You couldn't just look out just normal glass because it needed to withstand the pressure. This was fused quartz, eight inches in diameter and three inches thick. And the fittings, again, they look like stubby eye stalks. It's like a three-eyed monster. Yeah. And quartz was used because it was the, uh, quote, strongest transparent substance known, and it transmits all wavelengths of light. Now, earlier we mentioned the door that wasn't really a door. What, is, what does BB say about the door? He describes it as a, quote, round 400-pound lid <laughs> that, quote, had to be lifted on and off by a block and tackle and fitted snugly over 10 large bolts around the manhole, the latter just big enough to permit the passage of a slender human body. B.B. was a very slender guy, we should point out. I've seen pictures of him, and he is spindly. (laughs) Now, uh, on top of that, uh, let's discuss some of the other attributes, uh, physical attributes of the bathysphere. It had a single external light. Just 1,000 watts, Mm -hmm. one light. And you flipped it on or off from inside. And the sphere was lowered on a single steel, non-twisting cable nearly an inch in diameter with a braking strain of 29 tons or a dozen bathyspheres. Okay, so they wanted to be real safe because, of course, if that cable breaks, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah, you're, you're done for. Yeah, and see you, ya. And you have to worry about more than just the what happens if the, the cable breaks. So you have to worry about, well, what if there's stormy weather, etc. Now, you mentioned there's a light on the thing, so that means they got to get power down there somehow. Yeah, so they had an additional car- cable that carried both uh, the electrical power and the telephone wires. Oh, telephone wires. So they had to have some way to communicate with the service. Right. I assume they couldn't just tug on the cable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would work. Yeah. But... Uh, but yeah, this this was kind of the limits of their connections to the surface. Right. They had uh, electricity coming down and they had that telephone wire. They did not have an air tube coming down. No. But of course, they had to breathe. Right. So the bathysphere included oxygen tanks with automatic valves uh, uh, that provided uh, the atmosphere. And then they just had trays of chemicals setting out. I believe to, it was soda lime and calcium chloride. Yeah. And this was to absorb moisture and carbon dioxide. Yeah, because you don't just need fresh air to breathe in. You need to scrub the carbon dioxide that you're breathing out. Yeah. I would. I would just want to drive home how... I mean, it's an amazing invention, but how dangerously crude it can it can feel. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of uh, there was a 1980s film. Was it the Voyagers? Uh, the Vo- uh, the Explorers. The Explorers, yes, where the kids build this uh, kind of spaceship that sets inside a, like a magic force field sphere. Uh, but they just build it, right? They just construct it from what they have at hand. And there's a there's a similar vibe with the bathysphere. Mm-hmm. Like there's just and it's just so ballsy to imagine climbing in this thing and descending <laughs> into the depth. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, it is a large ball. It is a it is a steel ball. Yes. <laughs> and it, it, even though it holds two divers and is essentially a, a two-man crew, uh, BB says that the total crew required to support this thing, uh, most of which are going to be members uh, uh, on the surface, uh, it comes to around 28 people total. 
So two under the water, 26 above the water. All right. So let's say you're William Beebe and you're like, okay, I've got a steel ball to die in. Um, (laughs) Where where are we going to put this down in the water? Well, they set their sights on the deep seas off the coast of Bermuda, uh, specifically a circular area about eight miles in diameter near Nonsuch Island. And here the depth reached about a mile. The first dive occurred in 1930. By June 11th, 1930, they'd reached a depth of, uh, of 1,300 feet or 400 meters. And in 1934, they reached 3,000 feet or 900 meters. And that was, of course, a by far the world record. Yes. They, they went much lower than anybody had ever been able to explore before. Yeah, they were really breaking new grounds with this. Uh, now, the bathysphere greatly improved humanity's ability to explore the depths. Uh, but again, it was it was ultimately a risky vessel to use. Yeah. And it was soon replaced by safer designs, including the bathyscape, which uh, positioned a traditional bathysphere beneath a, a large float. Uh-huh. Uh, and even the likes of the modern deep sea Challenger, famously piloted by James Cameron, that boasts a pilot sphere positioned beneath the rest of the vessel. So you can think of post-bathysphere designs as just basically being the bathysphere uh, attached to a larger um, uh, system of uh, flotation. A submarine, basically. A submarine. Basically, like, let's attach this to a submarine that has power, that has uh, the ability to to, uh, raise and lower itself within the water. Uh, But the bathysphere was was just the sphere, just this this steel container for the humans to descend in. Having your own power really does seem to make a difference, right? I mean, there's a huge difference between being in a submarine that can move and just hanging in a ball on a thread. Yeah, I mean, just the the psychological uh, uh, notion here, just the idea that, hey, if if I I get tired of descending into the, uh, the darkness, of the deep sea, then I can just, I can, I can raise myself out of this. I have some level of control and I'm not just uh, hoping that everything's going okay up there on the surface. Now, of course, by virtue of the fact that BB and his team went deeper than anyone ever had before, he got to observe far more than anyone ever had before. So I think we should go into his scientific observations. And we'll do that right after this break. All right, we're back. So William Beebe, the modern Gilgamesh, he and his co-pilot are in the ball, in the steel death trap, sinking down, down, down into the ocean, deeper than anybody's ever gone before, and looking out the portholes to see what they can see. So let's talk about what they see. What did they discover through this research method? Well, Beebe observed and sketched, again, because cameras of the day were largely useless given the conditions of the bathysphere and its environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he described a world, quote, stranger than any imagination could have conceived. And he he writes about it very beautifully. Oh, yeah. And and he really brought the results. Between 1929 and 1937, Beebe and his team caught more than 115,000 animals from 220 species, many uh, many of which were new to science. So they were combining different research methods at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, before we get into some of the specific creatures that he saw or claimed to have seen, uh, we should probably just talk about his experience with darkness and light, because ultimately that is the, I mean, that's, that's kind of the defining experience that he describes. Oh, exactly. So B.B. writes, quote, In the course of the half mile down, although my eyes were perfectly dark adapted, I could detect not the faintest glimmer of light from 1,700 feet down. So as far as the human eye was concerned, conditions of absolute darkness existed at these deeper levels. And then he says, from 1,700 feet down, 
animal light is the only external source of illumination. So, of course, they did have a light they could flip on, but they didn't want to do that all the time, right? Because that would be affecting and changing the environment. So they, they didn't do that always. They would try to see often just what they could see in the dark that was self-illuminated. And when you go that far down, there actually are very many bioluminescent creatures that will illuminate themselves for you to see, but they'll also illuminate the water so that you can see other animals around them. And Beebe writes, quote, Occasionally, the head of a fish would appear conspicuously against the surrounding black, illumined by some indirect source of unknown lighting. Eyes especially stood out with no definite source of light visible. When teeth were thus silhouetted, I knew it was from a luminous mucus which covered them. Cheek lights flashed and dimmed or vanished altogether, showing some control other than the usual disappearance into an opaque epidermal trench. And I should mention those last quotes I provided came from uh, a paper he published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 1932 or 33. Yeah, he was extremely impressed by the display of bioluminescence as as he descended. So he noted uh, the lights of fish, jellies, and various animals that he couldn't really identify in, in passing. And it was something of a revelation to him. Uh, about a third of a mile down, he saw something that he described as a, quote, pyrotechnic network and was and it was quote so delicate and evanescent that its abyssal form is quite lost if we ever take it in our nets wow so in other words if we were just to pull this up you know would it what would we have we would have maybe some shriveled mass but we certainly would not have this floating bioluminescent thing that i'm witnessing right now well in the last episode we talked about uh the sea cucumber that turns to red kool-aid here you would i guess turn into bioluminescent Kool-Aid. Uh, and then there's this, uh, there's this, this description of the abyssal rainbow gars, which mm. uh, we'll come back to uh, later on. He says, at 11.17 o'clock, I turned the light on suddenly and saw a strange quartet of fish to which I have not been able to fit genus or family. Shape, size, color, and one fin I saw clearly, but abyssal rainbow gars is as far as I dare go. In other words, he's saying that's as far as I dare go in classifying it and, okay. and naming it. Uh -huh. Quote, and they may be anything but gars, about four inches overall. They were slender and stiff with long, sharply pointed jaws. And it's worth noting no one has ever captured a specimen quite like this nor seen it. Uh, and this is, this is one of the, the mysteries that arises from William Beebe's observations. Specimens that have have not been caught uh, or even witnessed again and we're left to wonder well what what did he see right did he have access somehow to to seeing things no one has actually seen since then or was he mistaken did he think he was seeing something that he actually wasn't or was he making it up i mean i i don't want to think he was making it up but i guess we have to consider that as a possibility yeah and we'll we'll touch on that some of the thinking on that a little later but but one thing we should go ahead and drive home here is that, again, the bathysphere did not have an engine on it. It did not have propellers. It was a very silent affair in a realm where, where sound truly carries. Yeah. And can have damaging effects, uh, especially our modern, uh, uh, our, our modern state of affairs with, uh, with, with ships and sonar. Uh, but even just a noisy submarine uh, would have potentially scared away various species. So there is an argument to be made here that the bathysphere, as it's descending rather silently and at times uh, in incomplete darkness, 
would have attracted or been or, or at least would not have, have frightened away a species that would recoil from a modern exploratory submarine. That's interesting and that's, that's a good point to keep in mind. Uh, as we go on and discuss some more of the things he recorded seeing, I think if you have the ability while you're listening, you should look up some of the artworks of Elsa Bostelman. She was, again, one of the artists who was doing sketches for, for BB's team. And uh, so it would be great to have some of those in front of your eyes while we're talking here. Now, another variety of fish that uh, BB reported seeing are the dragonfish. Now, these are different than sea dragons. Right. Quote, a six-inch dragonfish or stomias passed. Lights first visible, then three seconds of searchlight for identification, then lights alone. And there seemed no reason why we should not swing the door open and swim, <laughs> swim out. Now, I can think of various reasons not uh, to do that, PB, but That's I understand the, that he's trying to capture uh, his excitement here. It's the deep sea version of the thing like, you know, the, the sudden desire, to, the, the call of the void, right? Yeah, yeah. Or the desire to like swerve into oncoming traffic. <laughs> So uh, he was – this was his guess that these were dragonfish. Uh, and again, we have to put ourselves in the bathosphere and imagine peering out through these tiny uh, uh, you know, quartz lenses at, uh, at things just swimming by, mm -hmm. sometimes lingering but maybe not. Sometimes wholly visible for a, a few seconds, sometimes only partially visible. Uh, but he guessed that these were some variety of dragonfish. Uh, and the particular species that he was describing was unknown to science at the time. Uh, but he was familiar with other species of Stomias. Now, he apparently reported seeing a six-foot dragonfish as well. As uh, marine biologist and author uh, Richard Ellis discusses in his book, Singing Whales and Flying Squid, The Discovery of Marine Life. So to put that in perspective, uh, I believe the largest known dragonfish at the time was a mere 15 inches in length. Wow. I mean, if you look up what dragonfish look like, they are... It is terrifying to imagine a six-foot-long one. It's kind of like uh, – in fact, I would compare it very much to the discovery of the six-foot-long Cambrian predator Anomalocaris, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the idea that something that creepy could get that big is really disturbing. Yeah, so these these creatures were members of the order Stomaformes, which also includes the viperfish, ah. which uh, Bibi also notes on his dives. Now, in the introduction uh, to the novel Starfish, uh, the author Peter Watts, who was also uh, also has a marine biology background, he mentions Bibi having uh, reported a seven foot viperfish. Now, I don't I don't doubt Watts in this, but I can't personally find a reference to this particular sighting. But then again, I didn't look at all of the scientific papers that uh, that Beebe put out over the years. Uh -huh. uh, but, but he certainly mentions uh, viperfish in his biography. And the idea, if you look up a picture of a viperfish, again, it's very much like, like the dragonfish, this, uh, this sharp-toothed, long, fierce, eel-like creature, and to imagine a seven-foot version of this uh, swimming past you as you're cramped in your steel beach ball. It's just yeah. terrifying to imagine. Yeah. Well, it swims up to the window to say, hey, I'm here to vosh and vipe your windows. <laughs> what is that from? Oh, you don't remember that story, The Viper? No. I think it was in, uh, it was in that book, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. 
No, I remember the book, or at least the illustration, yeah. Uh, well, bad joke if it didn't land. Sorry. I mean, no, I don't know. I mean, there's a story called The Viper about a guy who keeps calling on the phone who says, like, I am the Viper and I'm coming. And somebody gets really scared because the Viper is coming. And then finally when the Viper gets there, he says he's there to vosh and vipe the windows. Oh, because he's really the wiper. Right. Oh, okay. No, I think the joke will work for people who, who know the reference. I just didn't catch it. Jokes are always better when you spend a few <laughs> minutes explaining them, you know. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to another uh, sighting uh, that B.B. That reported, that of the great fish. And I believe we read uh, a little bit from this one at the top of the first episode. Oh, yeah, series. yeah. So what was this great fish? Well, he describes it essentially as just this wall of flesh passing him by in the faint light, something that he guessed to be about 20 feet long. Wow. And it, it could have been a number of things. So he he thinks it might have been some manner of whale, mm-hmm. and uh, it could have been uh, it could have been a sperm whale, for instance, which is as we've discussed on the show in our Leviathan episode, is a large creature, and it can and it can dive much deeper than uh, the bathysphere, and can get much bigger than twenty feet. Correct. Yes. Uh, now, however, it's also been brought up uh, so that it could have been some kind of a, a deep sea shark. Because uh, in 1975, marine biologists uh, managed to glimpse and photograph six gill sharks at a depth of uh, 2,460 feet. And, and so Ellis suggests that it's possible that BB could have seen this or perhaps a deep sea shark such as the Greenland shark, whose range apparently includes Bermuda's waters. Huh. Okay, now you know one of everybody's favorite deep sea creatures is, of course, the Trixie anglerfish. Oh, yes, because the image of the anglerfish with its large gaping mouth and sharp teeth and then that that, that strange bioluminescent lure that hangs in front of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just such an amazing-looking creature, and that's without even getting into its ex- extremely bizarre reproductive uh, uh, methods. Oh, with the tiny male. The tiny male yeah. that's like a little reproductive heat seeker that infuses with her body. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've discussed that on the, the show before. Uh, but he did have a run-in with the anglerfish. Here's another quote from Half Mile Down. Quote, another interesting fish on this trip was one which I saw by the light of our electric beam at 1,900 feet on the way up. It was one of the true giant female anglerfish, a full two feet in length with enormous mouth and teeth. Deep and thick, with a long tentacle arising from the top of its head, I saw no light from this, but it was distinct for a moment in the surrounding illumination. Twice its mouth opened and partially shut, and then we passed out of its life. Three of these weird fish have been taken dead at the surface, but three years of intensive trawling have given us no hint of their presence here. For a few seconds, I was within 10 feet of one, and the memory will never leave me. Yeah, I'd guess in the steel ball in the deep, you make a lot of memories. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so one of the, the, the things we've discussed here is that so many, many of these sightings were def- can definitely be backed up. Uh-huh. Uh, many of these sightings were of were creatures that are known to science and we have specimens for them. But, but others but remain it, a mystery. Yeah, I mean, it is necessarily subjective reporting. Like we said, the photography of the time could not capture things. So now if you take a deep sea sub down, you can videotape the whole thing. So mm-hmm. you can prove what you saw when you came back. Here we have to rely on the word of the people who were in the bathysphere looking out. Right. And that led even uh, scientists at the time to question some of it. So ichthyologist Carl Hubbs, for instance, he had some issues with uh, the reported uh, uh, bioluminescence. And he suggested in 1933, quote, I am forced to suggest that whatever the author saw 
might have been a phosphorescent cylinderate whose lights were beautified by halation in passing through a misty film breathed onto the quartz window by Mr. Beebe's eagerly oppressed face. <laughs> I like the snooty voice you give Hobbes there. <laughs> well, I get a, I do get a very like snooty, intellectual, like stuffy academic vibe here saying, who is this? this science popularizer, yeah. uh, you know, without an advanced degree, daring to uh, to report on the secrets of the deep. Yeah, I mean, you're naturally, I think a modern person is sort of naturally inclined to be on BB's side here, especially because of like we see him being criticized for non-legitimate reasons, like you're hiring women researchers, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's nonsense. So you, you kind of like naturally want to say like, okay, if people are coming at him with criticisms, they're not fair. But some criticisms might be fair while other ones aren't. Yeah, I mean it, it comes back around to the fact that we are depending upon his observations and the observations of Otis. And, and in many cases, one – it's not like both of them saw the same thing. They're looking out of different windows. Yeah. Uh, there are several cases where BB says, oh, and then Otis saw this creature and I really wish I could have seen it, but I didn't. Uh, or likewise, it's something that only BB saw and Otis was looking at something else. Yeah. Now, in all of this, I, I'm personally inclined to believe BB, or at least I, I really want to believe him. Yeah. And I, and I have, I have not conducted in like an exhaustive um, analysis of his, you know, personality mm-hmm. or anything. But based on what we've read about him uh, and his work, he seems to be to have been a very meticulous researcher mm-hmm. who cared about accurately presenting. Uh, what was going on in the ocean. Well, Ellis had an opinion on that, right? He did. He does, yeah. So uh, Ellis writes, quote, it is possible that BB was the only person ever to see these mysterious creatures. It is also possible that he made them up. But although he wrote very cleverly and well, there is very little in his published work to indicate that he was a practical joker. Mm-hmm. Now, to play devil's advocate, though, uh, Ellis does point out that B.B. might have possibly joked at one point about lights being those of, quote, a giant toadfish, <laughs> and that perhaps B.B., having neither uh, a graduate or undergraduate degree, wanted to, quote, put one over uh, on the academics. Uh, and it, it's it's also worth noting that he would have not been the first to play such a prank. Uh, Ellis points to a 1933 prank by Australian ichthyologist uh, Gilbert Whitley. And he makes the point that B.B. would have known that his observations were fairly safe for the foreseeable future. So, mm. in other words, he could have made something up and known that, hey, if, if future explorers come down to the same part of the ocean, the same depth, and they don't see it, that in no way disproves what I'm claiming to have seen. Right. His reports, quote, would, it, would enter the literature, as they have done, with virtually no possibility of being discounted. It is, after all, one of the basic tenets of cryptozoology that negative evidence cannot be disproved. A fact uh, beloved by Chupacabra movie purveyors everywhere. Yes. So Ellis stresses that, look, we, we simply don't know. Another thousand or ten thousand dives might be required. To, to really prove any of this out. But he says that the very fact that, that, they, that some of these specimens have not been seen since BB, that that casts their existence into doubt. Yeah. But now also, as I think we have said before, BB did see some things that were not known about at the time but have since been verified. Yeah. I mean, in the vast majority of the deep sea fishes he describes are confirmed by specimens. Uh, and in one case, the, quote, untouchable bathysphere fish uh, did turn out to be a species of dragonfish uh, later found to inhabit the middle layers of the ocean where he reported them. Yeah. 
So for many of these creatures, perhaps we simply haven't seen them again. Uh, the ocean is a big place and one that contains plenty of mystery. Perhaps these uh, species have suffered or gone extinct due to, the, due to the damage that humans have inflicted on the ocean. That's highly possible. Yeah. Or as we've discussed, uh, perhaps these creatures were more easily seen by the silent motorless bathysphere as it descended through the depths. Uh, the aquatic environment, after all, is quite vulnerable to sound. Yeah. And to go back into the differences of the general methods of, uh, of sampling the depths, you, you, if you've got the Gilgamesh method and the Ebizu method, there are plenty of species that are not very easily picked up by various kinds of Ebizu methods, like whether you're trawling with a net or trying to drag a dredge along, uh, whatever you're doing, there are some species that just tend not to get caught like that. Yeah. Now, one thing I, I do want to throw in here is that in some of these discussions of uh, – of the more mysterious creatures, there tends to it tends to fall into extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Either he definitely saw something that we have not seen since, or he just made it up. Yeah. Without real without really addressing the fact that there are a number of um, of possible um, variations between those two extremes. I mean, it was dark down there. It was dark. They're they're just getting glimpses of things. So I would I would counter with: Isn't it possible that he saw some of these things but misjudged their size? Mm-hmm. That he later remember them a little differently. Like I, I don't think it is necessary for for BB to be a prankster or a liar for him to have misreported something that he that he thought he saw. Oh, I totally agree there. Yeah, and so you know, speaking for myself, I'm not inclined to really entertain some of these more nefarious interpretations of his observations. I was a little thrown when he saw the kraken the size of an island. <laughs> Wait, that wasn't BB. I'm always confusing BB with those medieval Norwegians. Well, this does raise the question, if he if he was to make something up, yeah. like why didn't he go even broader with his descriptions? Yeah. But I, I don't know. that Again, we're getting into, into areas of, of pure speculation here. Well, I, I like this because it sort of brings us back to the fact that we were discussing earlier uh, and in the last episode about how we know a lot more about the deep than we used to, but we still don't know tons of stuff about the deep oceans. The deep oceans are, uh, it's almost a cliche to say now because people emphasize it so much, but it's very true. They're, they're entirely alien to us. We know very little about them. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's been uh, reported that 95% of the ocean is unexplored. Uh, and, and, and that's to say it, it hasn't even been seen with human eyes. Yeah. Uh, I know there are various ways of people disputing that figure, but suffice to say that even large portions of the ocean that are sort of roughly mapped have not actually been seen. Yeah. Uh, as of 2014, less than 0.05% of the ocean floor uh, had been mapped to a level of detail useful for detecting items such as uh, the wreckage of airplanes or uh, the spires of undersea volcanic vents. And I've seen a higher stat in recent years. For instance, according to the Unseen Oceans exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History, only 10 to 15% of the seafloor sea uh, is revealed to us in accuracy. Uh-huh. And in either case, ultimately, we know more about the surface of Mars than the seafloor of our own planet. Part of the issue there, of course, is that we can't use satellites uh, to map the seafloor in the same way that we can use satellites to map the surface of Mars. Uh-huh. We have to depend on things like sonar in, to, to do it. Yeah. But at the same time, as we've said, we know a lot more than we used to, and it's exciting that there is so much more to learn. Indeed, and I think that's why we keep coming back to the ocean on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We talk about the mysteries of outer space. We talk about the mysteries of the inner mind. 
And of course, we're going to keep talking about the mysteries of the ocean. I mean, there's no uh, dragonfish in space. It's true. Like, the, the ocean is the mysterious realm uh, in which we know there is alien life and yeah. we keep discovering new forms. There may be dragonfish in the mind. Yes. Oh, undoubtedly, there are dragonfish in the mind. Uh, but uh, but in, in the ocean, we can actually pull them up and uh, and poke at them. Though how much better to go down and observe them in their natural habitat rather than pulling them up. Yeah. And so that's the legacy of William Beebe in the bathosphere. That's right. Uh, the, the modern Gilgamesh, as you put it. All right. Well, hey, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find this episode, the previous episode, and all the other episodes of the podcast, as well as blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts. Thanks, as always, to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback about this episode or any other episode, to let us know a topic you think maybe we should cover in the future, or just to say hi and let us know uh, your, your thoughts, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.